Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. Or you can go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. At The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about what's happening in the world today, where the world is going, and we talk about the future. And we take a pretty unusual view on those matters on this program. We believe that if you're not excited about the future, you're not paying attention. And we believe that something's going to happen, something wonderful. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? I am super fantastic, and I'm coming to you live this evening via Skype technology. And yeah, we've we've had a couple of Skype there. tests, and, and it's uh, it, I tell you, Skype has come a long way in a year or two, hasn't it? I, I think that uh, from a technology standpoint, they they seem to have really got gotten their act together. We we tested that with you doing a program. When was that? Probably six months ago. That was quite a while ago. You did that. You called in on Skype. Several months ago, yeah, I was calling from San Anto- from a San Antonio hotel room, and I did not want to get tagged with that hot- long distance hotel room, uh, you know, price. Oh yeah, so, yeah, you and, can't pay for a phone in a hotel room. Oof. No, can't do that. So I I used the uh, internet that came with the room to call in, and that worked out just fine. So well, it, it did. It worked great. And of course, every time PJ Manny calls into the show, I think every time she uses Skype, and uh, we we we've had. Uh, uh, earlier in our podcasting career, not great luck with it. So uh, we had uh, we had moved on to using other technologies. But because of our big show shows, I should say next week we're going to be on twice next week covering Convergence 08. Um, I'm really going to have to make Skype technology work in, in order for us to do those programs. So um, so we're trying it out here again tonight. But I was going to say what's ironic about us using Skype is I don't know if you've uh, checked. The, uh, the the web stats for speculus the the major searches that lead us to uh, that lead people who are doing Google searches to the speculus of course you know that if they do an image search and they're looking for Xena um, you did a post like three years ago with a picture of Xena warrior princess and people all these people come to the speculus to look for that picture but uh, as far as as far as uh, phrases go do you have any idea what the number one phrase is I have no idea what brings them Skype sucks. <laughs> because I, I, I did a, I did a blog post. I was very annoyed with Skype. Uh, it was probably two, three years ago, and I wrote a blog post called "Skype Sucks," and I vented. And uh, we get comments on that to this day. People, when I, I guess other people who have some kind of problem with Skype or other, they type that in, and for some reason, we're one of the, we are one of the top searches uh, for for the phrase "Skype Sucks." So, um, well, uh, to, yeah, to I, our I, I, Skype, I'm sorry about that. I, I feel <laughs> hypocrite. Uh, well, you know, if if uh, we don't have a problem tonight with Skype, and if uh, you know you can get through the entire show sounding uh, as as crystal clear as you saw right now, then what you do is you you type another post. Skype sucks, not you know. And I think so. Actually, I have to link from the original Skype sucks because that's where everybody is going. But uh, so yeah, hey Skype, if you're listening, this is your big chance. Okay, to uh, uh, we can we can redirect people in a in a good way to. Uh, to Skype, so so I wanted to wanted to note that uh, if things go funky as they have in the past using Vonage, and I might have to do a Vonage sucks article. I don't know because we had a couple of problems with my Vonage phone over the over the last few weeks. But if, but if we have those kinds of problems, uh, uh, obviously Stephen, you've got the show well in hand, and uh, you've got nothing <laughs> to worry. About. All as right, always. as always. So um, just just wanted to give a heads up about that and. Um, where shall we start this evening? What's 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 new with you these days? Well, I I thought we'd uh, just uh, point out that Tuesday is Veterans Day, and uh, ah. and we want to say a special thanks to all veterans uh, that both that have served in the past and are currently serving. And we we appreciate that's you. right, absolutely. Uh, we want to thank them for their service to our country. Thank uh, their families as well for the. Uh, for the sacrifices made all the way around there. We, uh, we honor and appreciate uh, our veterans, and uh, that includes our chat host, Michael Darling. Say hello, Michael. Good evening, all. You're not going to thank everyone's dogs? <laughs> um, if, if they are making sacrifices, of course, we thank the, we thank the pets as well. There you go. I mean, I would, I would even leave the cats out of it, but dogs, I think dogs are different, you know, 
pretty. Yeah, they, they they miss their owners when they're gone. I guess they do miss their owners when they're gone. Okay, so you're right. So well, I said families. I would include dogs. As members <laughs> there you go. Whereas we know that uh, cats tend to be more disgruntled tenants, right, or like co-owners of the of the property rather than. That. Although I, you know, if a cat lover's listening, I'm sure they miss their master or their owner. Or their if, if a cat lover's listening, I have bad news. What's that? I have uh, I have. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I can't quote the uh, the name of the infectious disease slash uh, ger- gerontologist who did the study, but he's concluded that when we get into serious life extension 20, 35 years down the line, he wrote this last year, so 24 to 30 not, to 29 years down the line, humans will only allow themselves to affiliate with dogs as domestic animals because they're the only ones with whom we've been symbiotic for thousands of generations in such a way that all the bacteria and all of the uh, infectious issues have worked themselves out. And every other species we will shun as pets in, in lieu of choosing longevity. That's cool. We, we need to get the link to that, Michael. That's, that's I'll, I'll email it later tonight. I've got it downstairs on my desk. And, and so this falls in line with the idea that people whose lives have been extended therefore become much more risk-averse, right? We've written about that quite a bit. Yes. Yes. Why would you have an iguana for a pet when, you know, if you if, if you, you 122, you find out its bacteria will kill you. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and, and we have uh, actually… The charming though iguanas are. <laughs> well… Any iguana listeners, with no disrespect to uh, iguanas or cats or any exotic or standard pets that anyone might have, we're very open-minded about pets on this program. <laughs> but but we we did we did do a, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, did a piece about uh, I, I guess uh, dogs have been with people even longer than we thought. Um, that uh, that and I don't have the link right in front of me, but uh, we thought it went back about. Uh, 50,000 years, and apparently went, it was more like in the hundreds of thousands or something like that, 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 that people and dogs, humans and dogs, have been living uh, symbiotically together. So. Did, were dogs around when they were dinosaurs? No. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe they were. Well, Dino, of course, he was kind of a I mean, I don't think we guy. were. I don't think humans were, but I'm just wondering, were dogs? Uh, the only mammals around there in the time of the dinosaurs were like this shrew-like thing. There were mammals, but that was that was it. And all mammals yeah, are the dinosaurs kind of were holding us down until until they wow. until they until left. They, we weren't able, to, you know. Yeah, mammals didn't pod- didn't didn't uh, you know really expand out you know expand out until the reptiles were removed from the picture. That's right. So fascinating <laughs> stuff. Well. I, I'm sorry, Stephen, you, you were saying? I was just going to uh, say, you know, kind of a bummer this week. We learned that Michael Crichton passed away. That um, was that was sad news. Uh, uh, a very youthful 66, and apparently he had been struggling with cancer for some time, which was not widely known, apparently. I think that... Uh, I don't think uh, outside of his family it was really known. Yeah, it came as a big surprise to a lot of people. And, of course, um, uh, Michael Crichton... Uh, a, a man who has created a lot of entertainment for us over the years uh, with with things like the Andromeda Strain and Jurassic Park and um, I don't know even Congo for those who uh, for those who enjoyed it, but uh, but also who had a lot of serious ideas. He had become kind of a social critic here in the last few years. Uh, had some uh, had some pretty serious ideas about uh, where science was going and and the relationship between science and politics. Um, that I think we'll, you know, probably come back to a little bit later in the program, some of those relationships. Right. Uh, W.G., what uh, Michael Crichton wrote, uh, he's most famous for, is Jurassic Park. Right. Jurassic Park. Well, just uh, Jurassic Park, Sphere, Rising Sun, they, that was a big yeah. one. Um, Twister, a lot of people don't know that. He wrote Twist, uh, the screenplay to Twister. Uh, Disclosure, Congo, The Thirteenth Warrior, I love that movie. Um Coma. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for that and directed it. Man, Stephen, you're uh, just rattling them off. That's awesome. Yeah, Term- the and Terminal of Man created, created the TV series ER. That's right. That's right. So uh, George Clooney owes him a debt of gratitude, doesn't he? Um, and what's another one? Oh, Westworld. He he did Westworld too. So I mean, he, uh, the man was a machine. I mean, he uh, he put out, he put out entertainment like uh, just right and left and. 
he directed movies and he uh, uh, wrote screenplays, wrote books, and uh, he was a practicing physician all those years too. So, um, you know, just uh, a remarkable man. Well, as as someone who does a lot of uh, business travel, Michael Crichton is one of the authors that you could rely on to help you get through a big long, especially like an international flight. Right. You get one of his books, you sit down, and you're you're good to go for hours at a time because you just start turning pages and you get caught up in his story. And uh, the only one that didn't work was a, a novel that you didn't mention was Airframe. Do you remember that yeah. one? Which was all about. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to read that one on an airplane. <laughs> you do not want to read that one. I don't think that one should have even been allowed to be sold in uh, airport bookstores. Because it was all about it's pretty spooky. Turbulence and planes crashing and, and uh, all. But, uh, um. But, you know, a movie that was awful, truly awful, um, made from a really good book of his was Congo. I mm-hmm. I, I don't know, Phil, have you ever read Congo? I have, yeah. I enjoyed Congo quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, and then it was made into, I thought, a, a poor movie. Not but, a terribly uh, good movie, no. Yeah, so skip the movie on Congo, go straight to the book. It's uh, it's it's yet to be made into a decent movie. So That's yeah. true with Timeline as well. I thought the movie uh, was pretty yeah. disappointing compared that's right. But anyway, Michael Crichton, uh, you will be missed, sir. We thank you for uh, all the all the great books. And uh, uh, missed the opportunity to, to have him on the show. Yeah, that's that's, that that's too bad. Yeah. What might have been there? Oh. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, before we completely let uh, Michael go into the chat room. Um, thought we would uh, talk just a little bit about the election returns. My, Michael, I, I believe you had observed there were a couple of uh, a, a couple of things on the ballot in California that were of interest. I would to say uh, I would it was focusing specifically on speculist-ish perspectives in the elected, election. Uh, a couple of victories nationwide and one or two uh, minor setbacks. The victories, um, California voters approved uh, increasing the taxes on themselves. Um, you know, that's one of these things where they increase the sales tax at the fourth decimal place or something, but they they agreed to tax themselves to build a high-speed train, which I thought was really exciting. Where is it going to go from and to? Uh, well, conceptually, the idea is that it will go from somewhere to somewhere else, but I was going to answer the smart-alecky rea- true answer is right now it's not going to go from anywhere to anywhere. Um, but the idea... <laughs> The idea is that it will connect L.A. to San Francisco, and okay. that it will do that. And if you're familiar with the Bay Area, uh, this becomes important because San Francisco is not connected by rail to the rest of California other than there's a Caltrain, um, which is somewhere between light rail and Amtrak in terms of actual muscle, that runs down the peninsula. It connects San Francisco straight down the peninsula to some of the cities in San Mateo County. Um, but this would be a high-speed you know, top speed in the low 200s, uh, go from L.A. to San Francisco right up the, right up the peninsula, and uh, all points obviously in between. And then, as rails do, the passenger design would be, uh, I wouldn't call it spider fingers as much as I would uh, veins and, and secondaries coming off of that artery. And those rails largely exist. They're just unused for passenger service. So I was like, well... Okay, high-speed rail, and ultimately the extension would then go the other direction to San Diego, and to some degree you'd get over the over the mountains out of LA and get into um, get into the valley somehow. Yeah, now, if you want to go north from San Francisco, do you then need to? Cro- we're getting way into this here, but this is interesting to me. Do you need to then cross back over the bay? And, uh, and I don't believe the uh, the high-speed and there's a cute acronym for it. It's the California High-Speed Rail Association, or whatever the heck their their acronym is, um, that they campaigned on. Because, of course, you can't campaign unless you have something that, you know, is really easy to say and you can explain it in, like, four seconds to a fourth grader. Um, you can't you just can't win an election then. But So they had their cute little acronym, whatever it was. And I don't think that design, that group that's worked on the design till now, has really worked out exactly what you would do at high-speed rail north of San Francisco, whether you would have another sort of main line that went up the spine or went up the Central Valley, um, and in Sacramento to Reading, you could go that way, or whether you just have to bite the bullet, so to speak, and cross the gate, go right past Starfleet Academy, and straight up the coast. 
<laughs> yeah, I, w- I wonder how that's going to work. Let me uh, let me just uh, interrupt just long enough to say that you're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking about various topics related to the future, and if you'd like to join our discussion, we've got a live chat going on in our chat room, or you can give us a call at 347-215-8972. Now, when we say high-speed high speed train, uh, do we know how fast, how high of a speed is there, it? There, it? It would be what will be uh, state-of-the-art for steel wheel on steel rail. It won't be maglev. Um, and there's all kinds of good reasons for it not to be maglev, which largely have to do with the fact that when you when you evaluate the, both the expense and the infrastructure requirement of uh, of, a, of a legitimate maglev long-haul line, um, your stops have to be spaced so far apart that this particular design for this particular location, maglev didn't make any sense. Um, and steel oh, on steel right now, but but wait, low two hundred. Did, did they evaluate the coolness factor? Right. I mean, that's... Uh, clearly they did not. There's another group uh, which, from a coolness point of view, is clearly way ahead. Plus, I think you know they're, they're maybe more movie inspired. Their their uh, concept, and they spent several million. I don't know if they're into the tens of millions yet, but they've spent millions evaluating the uh, the conceptual design to take a high speed maglev from Anaheim, home of uh, Mickey Mouse and Knott's Berry Farm to Las Vegas, and that would be maglev, at least in that design, and from a coolness factor, uh, it would be hard to beat, and when I say it's movie-inspired, what was the thing with uh, uh, Will Smith, not Will Smith, the uh, Scarlett Johansson and the other guy, and they were clones, and they didn't know it, but they were just grown to be extra body parts out in the desert when they finally break out of the facility. yeah. Yeah. And they they end up on a maglev train in the middle of the desert and go into LA that way. Right. So so this this could this could happen. Actually, I love that I love that idea. You connect two major vacation hubs to each other with this. Well, you connect the two major vacation hubs, and I think going eastbound, you could also set it up so that uh, the gaming could begin as soon as you hit the border, right on the train. Oh, right on the train. Which Amtrak won't allow. Yeah, Amtrak never did that, and the Amtrak line. That connected Southern Cal with Vegas is no more. There's no passenger service currently. Aha. Uh-huh. So anyway, California gets high-speed rail. That seems speculistish. And uh, the other one, the other one was uh, Missouri. Became the 27th state where the voters, um, by by initiative, uh, now re- will require their utilities to obtain uh, increasing percentage of their electricity from renewable sources. Other states have done it. In fact, that was one of the speculative defeats in the election. California actually had a measure on the ballot that would have brought the percentage up to 50% um, in like a decade, and that failed, and that failed big. It, it lost like you know almost 70-30. It was like 68-32 or something. It lost in a big way. But the one in Missouri passed, and so Missouri will join a bunch of other states, including Colorado, our state, um, Phil and I, and uh, for having a legislative... Uh, requirement for utilities to generate a, uh, some percentage or minimum set percentage of electricity from renewable sources. That actually ties in with an article that uh, Phil, is, Phil is going to bring up here in a second about how, you know, whether or not it's a good idea to to mandate something or whether we should wait for technology to develop on its own. Well, I can tell you this. The, the, uh, the funny, I, I think the sort of ironic punchline for the Colorado legislative experience on this exact issue um, was that the utilities fought it. They didn't want to have the requirement put in place. And the argument they made is what we're going to talk about here in a second. This, this article, I think, makes the same similar argument that there are some things where the market should lead and government should follow, and there are other things perhaps where government has a role to follow. But um, forcing us into renewables, it's they're not ready, it's not time. And the law was written in Colorado, so utilities, you know, if 10% is the, the, the bogey, but you know what, it turns out it's going to cost too much and we can't do it. In the techn- Well, they have an escape hatch that says we can't do it. And once the requirement was there, getting the first 8% was like, it was so easy. They're like, uh, yeah, I guess, okay, this was the regulations here are okay. <laughs> and it, it turned out that although there was a, corporate and institutional resistance, the resistance was, yeah, but we were going to build this new coal plant over here, which now we don't need. Um, and, yeah, the technology is not really there, which it is. And the expenses will go through the roof, which they haven't. So now if, if we 
did the super aggressive thing that failed in California and said, oh, we're going all the way to 50%, all of those things would be true. But the, at least here, the first into the low double digits percentage generation, um, it was not that painful. It was really not painful at all. So it is doable. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I will observe that uh, we're talking Excel Energy here, right? I mean, I hate to mention any names, but yes. that's who we're talking about here. And uh, they, they seem to be able to incorporate anything into their worldview as long as it includes increasing my gas bill. All right, that seems to be the, you know, How cynical, Phil. <laughs> as long as they can figure you out say that as if, You say that as, as if that's not a legitimate strategy to you. <laughs> no, I, well, I, I, it appears to be working for them, obviously. Um, okay, well, those are, those, are both, uh, those are both great developments, I think, very, very interesting. And we can, we can get into the philosophy a little bit about, uh, uh, about mandating uh, uh, changes in, in how energy is produced. Uh, in fact, we will get into that in just a moment. But before we do, I, ha- I had another story that I wanted to, uh, to touch on, and this one takes us to a feature that uh, we haven't done in quite some time, a little uh, journey into the world of the unknown. Uh, I'm afraid we, like we won't have our music. Uh, crap. Oh, we don't no! have something I like to call... <laughs> Astounding science fact. <laughs> okay, sorry, Phil. I don't have the I don't have the bu- bumper music for that ready. We'll we'll do that oh. next time. Oh, oh well. Man. Anytime it's ready, play it. <laughs> yeah, just interrupt, Phil. Don't worry about that. But, uh, <laughs> that's okay. You all know it. You've heard it, right? I say astounding science facts, and then uh, there's there's uh, electricity sizzling, and then and then uh, a whale sings its whale song. It's, it's really inspiring, especially the way I just described it. I think. <laughs> so, yeah. so let me uh, let me tell you this amazing story. I had uh, I had seen this last week on I think it was Dig Science, and I kept meaning to blog it, um, but I hadn't got around to it. And then I saw Glenn Reynolds link to it today, and said, "Okay, we got to talk about this on the podcast tonight." This is the headline, uh, and he had uh, he had found it over on National Geographic News. I, it seems to me I saw it someplace else, the Universe Today, maybe. But the headline is. Unknown structures tugging at universe, study says. Okay, And let me read uh, just a few little uh, snippets here. On the outskirts of creation, unknown, unseen structures, and we're always careful to put that word in scare quotes, are tugging on our universe like cosmic magnets, a controversial new study says. Everything in the known universe is said to be racing toward the massive clumps of matter at more than 2 million miles an hour of movement the researchers have dubbed dark flow. And this dark flow uh, idea kind of goes, goes in line with dark energy and dark matter. I, it, it doesn't have anything to do with those two things, but it's, uh, they're, they're copying that naming convention, I guess, is the, is the idea. It says, uh, the presence of extra universal matter suggests that our universe is part of something bigger, a multiverse, and that whatever is out there is very different from the universe we know. According to study leader Alexander Kajlinski, an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. The newfound flow cannot be explained by and is not directly related to the expansion of the universe, though the researchers believe the two types of movement are happening at the same time. In an attempt to simplify the mind-bending concept, Kajlinski says to picture yourself floating in the middle of a vast ocean. As far as the eye can see, the ocean is smooth and the same in every direction, just as most astronomers believe the universe is. You would think that beyond the horizon, therefore, nothing is different. But then you discover a faint but coherent flow in your ocean, Kashlinsky said. You would deduce that the entire cosmos is not exactly like what you can see within your own horizon. So there it is. Massive structures, apparently matter of some kind, outside the horizon of the universe as the, the, that, that we can detect, apparently pulling on everything that's in the universe. What do you make of that, Stephen? Well, we don't want to say necessarily that it's matter. It might be something completely different. Um, you know, a, bend, a bending of space and time. We don't, you know, we have no idea what it is, do we? That's a good point, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it might have been structures that were in place before the Big Bang. And uh, our, as our universe expanded, uh, it basically pushed these structures out of the way, but they're continuing to exert an effect. We, the thing is, we just don't know, and I, I, I wonder how how we will ever know, you know, because we we don't have an ability to uh, directly observe these things. So, 
we can just kind of extrapolate based on the effects that it's having on the visible universe. So, yeah, uh, only what we can ex- extrapolate because I, I think there's a point beyond which, um, according to uh, physics that's a little over my head, you just can't get to, right? There, there are things that are so far away that at the rate we're traveling, we can just never get to them, right? So these, these would probably fall into that category. So the idea of observing or having any idea of, of what these are are problematic in the same way, almost exactly the same way, although it feels like a different problem, but they're problematic in the same way as uh, a parallel universe is problematic. Right. Um, you know, we, we have reason to believe that um, the, the many worlds hypothesis of uh, the many worlds interpretation, excuse me, of, of quantum mechanics is correct and that uh, a new parallel universe is created with each quantum branching event. And so we're spinning these different universes off all the time, but there's no way to access them, to observe them. Likewise with this, it's just outside of our, uh, just outside of what would ever be our ability to observe, at least as far as we know. So right. there, it's a very mysterious kind of uh, idea that these, uh, that these scientists are suggesting, and it's, it, it, it's intriguing. It, it, it kind of bends your brain a little bit to think about that, that there's something outside the universe, and we don't know what it is. Uh, and it reminds me of um, outside the physical universe. Uh, right. Well, outside the well, yeah, exactly. It, it might be our universe. universe. Uh, it might be uh, a part of our universe that's not visible to us, or it might be another universe altogether that's somehow interacting with our universe. Thing is, we just don't know, do we? So we we, we don't. What it's yeah. outside of is what we normally think of as our universe. It's right. outside of the whole structure created from the Big Bang. Um, all the galaxies and everything that we normally see. It's apparently, it, it's apparently not apparently not part of that whole setup. So it's right. something else. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's wacky. It reminds me of something I read by uh, Isaac Asimov. It was a collection of essays of his, and he was answering various questions. People were trying to give him like these intriguing philosophical questions, and one of the questions was, uh, "What do you think is beyond the edge of the universe?" And Isaac Asimov said non-universe. And uh, that's about as good of an answer as you can give, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's about all I can say. It's uh, it's something wacky and astounding, and uh, we hope to learn more about it. Um, And uh, we will revisit it in a future upcoming edition of Astounding Science Facts. That's pretty good when I say it that way. (laughs) No no well song, sorry. <laughs> All right, so this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking about various topics related to the future, and if you'd like to join us, we have an online chat room, or you can give us a call at 347-215-8972. So um, I'm looking at my outline, and I, I can't read one of my notes. Did, did we have something before we got to the Bjorn Lomborg thing, or uh, did, did I skip something that you had intended to talk about, Stephen? I think the, uh, the Bjorn Lomborg uh, article is going to lead into the next things that we need to talk about. So let's, let's go, in and go ahead and start with that. Okay, okay. So uh, interesting uh, piece by Mr. Lomborg in the uh, Wall Street Journal, the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, for, for those who aren't familiar, Bjorn Lomborg is, I believe, an economist, and he has written, I think now, a couple of books on the subject of uh, global warming, and he takes on the subject from the standpoint of an economist. Um, he's got a very bad reputation among um, the kind of the, the, the global warming community at, at large. He's, he's viewed as kind of a, kind of a pariah. Um, and you'll see in some of these, if, if, you, if you read environmental blogs or uh, green, green blogs or uh, websites where they, where they talk in a very passionate way about these issues, he's often described as a uh, global warming denialist, which is actually not true at all. He uh, takes the evidence at face value and he says, yes, uh, the, uh, he, he, he takes that as, as his departure point. He says, yep, uh, the... Uh, what is it? The IIC has said that uh, that this is the data and that this is where things are going and that, that, that this is what the world will be like in 100 years, and he has no argument with that. What he argues with is uh, what we should do about it. And his suggestion 
uh, ha has been all along that uh, solutions like Kyoto and, uh, and, and a lot of the government mandated uh, kinds of potential solutions for global warming that have been put in place are not terribly effective. And in this essay, I'll read just a few snippets here because I think this is, this is very interesting. He talks about the, uh, uh, the United Nations consensus uh, as, to, as to what the temperature will actually be 100 years from now because um, he, he says that on the kind of shock and alarm side of the spectrum, there are a lot of people talking about how bad things will be and, and you hear you hear about devastation and you think about things like that movie, uh, the, the, the Day After Tomorrow, and, and, and that kind of uh, just major dramatic impact. Uh, Lomborg says, well, science and economics say otherwise. The United Nations science consensus expects temperature increases of 3 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century, leading to, for example, sea level increases between one half and two feet. Most economic models show that the total damage by the end of the century will be about 3% of global GDP. Not trivial, but certainly not the end of the world. Remember that the UN expects that by the end of the century, the average person in the world will be some 1,400% richer. I just I want to note that. You know, That sounds like the kind of thing we would say, right? That people in 100 years will be 1,400% richer. But apparently that is a UN projection, that uh, that's, that's how much better off people will be in 100 years. That's kind of... It's very better all the time, I think, of the UN to take that kind of stance. I'm looking forward to he that. He goes on. He says, what's that? I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I, I'll take mine <laughs> now. I'll take half of that in cash right now, actually. Um, and yet, macro policymaking, such as the Kyoto Protocol, protocol has been supported by an ill-founded perception of impending doom. The framers of Kyoto will ask that the global economy spend $180 billion per year for each year of the coming century, mitigating CO2 emissions, with an eventual reduction of global temperature of an almost immeasurable 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. This would not matter if we had infinite resources and if we'd already solved all or most other problems. But we don't and we haven't, especially in the current economic climate. We have to prioritize what we do and we have to look coolly at the costs and benefits of policies. If we don't do this, we in the developed world will preside over a moral tragedy. We will waste an extraordinary sum of money doing relatively little good while millions of people suffer and die from problems which we could easily have consigned to history. Global warming will probably in isolation cause the number of malnourished to increase by 28 million by the end of the century, which that's a pretty appalling number when you, when you read that. But listen, listen to what he says. Yet the much more important point is that the world hosts more than 900 million malnourished right now, though we will add at least 3 billion more people to humanity before the end of the century, the total number of malnourished in 2100 will probably drop to about 100 million. That's that 1,400% at work, right? And in a much richer world, such remaining hunger is entirely a consequence of a lack of political will. Whatever is spent on climate policy saving one person from hunger in 100 years could instead save 5,000 people today. This same point is true whether we look at flooding, heat waves, hurricanes, diseases, or water shortages. Carbon cuts are an ineffective response. Direct policies, such as addressing hunger directly, do a lot more. So basically what he's saying I like what that, our chat room person said here. Uh, AVA Indiana says uh, Greenland uh, will, will melt and they'll start growing crops uh, in places like uh, Greenland, um, you know, like the Vikings did uh, before this most recent little ice age uh, froze up Greenland. Yeah, I've read about you know how the uh, the Vikings settled there and they they, they had dairy farms right uh, in Greenland and uh, cattle they had grazing and some fine vineyards in uh, in northern England and places like that. So yeah, it's uh, you know you would you'd think that maybe uh, if if we have global warming that there will be places that uh, we can grow food uh, that we can't currently grow food and maybe that'll take care of the malnourished uh, people. So. You know? Well, uh, there, there is a certain amount of mitigation that comes about just from the fact that the climate changes. People look at climate change and they look at all the bad things that will happen. Um, and and if, you're, if you're concerned about that and worried about uh, all, all the damage it will do, uh, you don't tend to say, oh, but they'll, they'll, they'll start growing crops in Greenland. In fact, one, one of the points he makes, and this is not really central to the argument here, but, but it's interesting. Um, 
He says, and while warming will mean about 400,000 more heat-related deaths globally, it will also have positive effects, such as 1.8 million fewer cold-related deaths. Yeah. According to the only peer-reviewed global estimate published in Ecological Economics, something that is rarely reported. Well, I, when I read that, I was astounded. I had never, I had never seen anything like that. Uh, you know, I, I, you don't, you don't think about how many people die from cold every year, but uh, apparently, over the course of a century, that would add up to quite a few more people than can be expected incrementally, additionally, to die from heat, uh, owing to the owing to the changes that have come about from from global warming. But but that's, I think, almost neither here nor there. I, I think I think it's correct to say, yes, we should look at um, we should look at if the climate's changing, what benefits will come as well as what uh, uh, what damage would come. But the, the the much more interesting question to me is. What do we do with this argument that you can save one person 100 years from now from being malnourished, or you can spend the same money today and save 5,000 people? Uh, you know, how can you possibly argue for uh, saving the one person in a century if you can save 5,000 now? Yeah, um, and and you know, I I wonder about uh, what what we would uh, be sacrificing with uh, carbon cuts. You know. Um, if if uh if we if we uh, tag industry uh with uh reducing carbon uh to the point that uh we we you know these our industry slows down our economies slow down uh you know how how many people will you know, will go without food and 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 be hungry because of that so you know it's it's all tied together yeah which is yeah i mean that's the that that's the uh, the, the the piece of the equation that's left out kind of on the other side Right. Yep. Which which is uh, here's here's the uh, uh, here's the damage that's done by global warming. Uh, here's the economic damage that's done by uh, attempts to mitigate. <laughs> yeah, nobody's uh, nobody's adding that up. Although I think actually, if you read the entire Lomborg essay, he probably does uh, he probably does talk about those uh, uh, pretty clearly. That's right. So, um, okay, okay, David Ray asks, the one person versus 5,000 argument presents a false dichotomy. Why not decrease carbon and feed hungry people today? Doing both. Well, um, I, I think that's true. We're talking about with the same money. Um, that, that's, that's Lomborg's point. His point is the money you spend doing one, um, you know, uh, why, why, not, uh, why not spend both? Well, I think that's, that's one possible uh, solution. Now, I see that the chat room is degenerating into a whole thing about uh, – they're starting to use the S word. No, I don't mean that S word. I mean a different S word, but uh, we're not going to get into that. Um, but, uh, but, but I think, I think that, I think that question is, is well raised. The, the, the point being, if you spend so much on mitigating global warming, you spend so much on um, trying to mitigate malnourishment, you spend so much on trying to otherwise mitigate poverty, you spend so much on trying to fight disease. There, there is a finite amount that can be spent on um, each of these items. And what ultimately will happen is that individuals and governments will decide we're, we, we, are going to, we are going to invest or spend this much money on this problem. We're not going to spend it on that problem. And I think Lomborg's point is if you're trying to solve the malnutrition, the malnourishment problems brought about by global warming, the money is much more effectively spent today than it is spent a century from now. And to, to me, the interesting question there then is, and let's just, uh, and this is accepting his numbers because I'm in no position to, um, uh, to run them one way or another. And if, if someone wants to show us different calculations that say, no, no, he's, you know, he's, he's off base. And actually uh, it's not nearly that many people who would be saved then, or a lot more people would be saved 21, uh, in 2100. Either way, that's, that's fine. Um, I, I'm just interested in the idea. How much of our effort should be on present benefit? Speaking as futurists now, right? Uh, how much of our effort should be on things that we're doing to make the world better right now, to solve problems right now, versus how much uh, of our effort and time should be devoted to these long-term kinds of problems? And, and how do we decide which, which we do now and, and which we aim at the future? Well, I mean, I, I think what your question is getting at is the, the question of central planning versus uh, 
uh, you know the the plan, you know the attacking of problems that the private sector does uh, on its own. Um, you know, I, you know if if uh, the if it's if you make the decision at, at uh, you know on high, you know the government makes that decision and then and then shoots for it. Often the government ends up overreaching. You know, I, it's, it's just my thought on that uh, that uh, it it pushes us uh, faster than we need to go or. Our, 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 our solves problems that the uh, that uh, you know that are already being solved in the private sector in a better way. So I mean, you know, that's that's just me. Well, I think I, I, what's interesting about that though is if we took that same money to save the five thousand people today, um, that would also be a central planning government uh, kind of a program. Right, right. I mean, we're just talking about the government spending the money one way versus uh, spending it a different way in this instance. Um, uh, but, but, but I see your point. Um, you know, there, there is this question as to whether, um, well, look, look at it this way. How effectively do government bureaucracies deal with the problems we currently have? You know, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag, right? They, they do very yeah. well with some things and maybe not so well with others. Therefore, if you, um, if you add this level of uncertainty as to what the world is actually going to be like 100 years from now, the, the notion that, uh, that, they, that we, acting as governments, can be very effective doing things about uh, conditions in the future, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to make the argument that, uh, that, that we can't be effective. But then if that's the case, um, what, what hope is there for us as, as futurists? Because we talk about problems like, I mean, you know, we, we, we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, and we talk about uh, nanotechnology. We talk about uh, you know, technologies that we see as potentially uh, life extension, ending disease, uh, ending poverty, ending hunger. But they're technologies that do that, right? They're not, we don't look at them as, uh, as government programs. So is it smart, is it correct, for us to focus on those technologies that we say will one day solve all of humanity's problems, or should we just actually uh, focus on solving humanity's problems? I, I, I think you've got to do both. I think, okay, David Ray was uh, on, uh, was on the right track. I think you've got to attack today's problems with a certain percentage of whatever budget it is that you've, you, you have to allocate. But you also better be doing some R and D on what can be done for tomorrow's problems too. Um, otherwise, you're going to get to tomorrow and 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 be caught flat-footed by the crisis that's you know that hits you. You know, um, you better have some contingency plans. You know. Absolutely. Well, I, I think I think a, a big part of it is uh, is about contingency planning. But uh, I think the other part is you, that we need to find a way to gauge uh, as realistically as possible um, what the outcomes will be of different things that we try. And of course, we're in this era of, as we like to describe it, rapidly accelerating change. Uh, and we're, we're heading towards this, uh, this kind of drop-off point in, in technological development beyond which it is simply impossible to make predictions as to as to what will be coming, but but even in the era that we're in, we can talk about um, uh, technologies that will vastly um, increase the amount of, uh, put it this way, vastly increase the material well-being of of uh, anyone who has access to them, and which could be widely distributed. Right? We talk about that in terms of in terms of nanotechnology, or we talk about uh, life extension technologies that uh, not only indefinitely extend human lifespan, but that, that uh, eliminate most of the kind of like chronic conditions that, that, that make life so difficult. I mean, you start wiping out poverty and hunger and, uh, to a certain extent, disease um, via technology, you've, you've tackled a lot of these problems um, that a government program can't address unless it's also looking at those technologies, right? I guess that's, that's my point. If, if the UN just on its own says that uh, 100 years from now, we're all going to be 1,400% better off than we are now, I wonder, I wonder how they got to that. 
you know, uh, what, you know, what, what trend are they following that says we're going to be 1,400% better off uh, in a century than, than we are today? Well, and if we're 1,400% uh, better off, uh, what, will, what will our dollars buy then? Because we'll have technology then that presumably we don't have today. Um, you know, uh, think, think of what $1,000 will buy in computer power today versus what it would have bought you in 1969, you know. Um, exactly. Uh, what will $1,000 then, you know. And number one, $1,000 won't mean as much to us because it'll be like pocket change. Um, you know, um, what, and, and, and then what would that thousand dollars buy you, you know? So, um, exactly. Well, let me, let me just, gonna, it'll be a different world. It will be a very different world. This is fast forward radio on the blog talk radio network. We're talking about mitigating problems. Do we solve today's problems or do we build the structures to solve tomorrow's problems? And if you'd like to join our conversation, we have a lively online chat occurring, or you can give us a call at three, four, seven, Two one five eight nine seven two. Well, I want to open this up to our friends in the chat room. Uh, I want to get votes from people. What do we do? Do we solve today's problems? Do we solve uh, tomorrow's problems? And 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 getting back to the um, the wh- where did the UN get their get their numbers? I can only imagine that that's probably based on a projection of a century uh, looking back worth of data. Right. Yeah, which is to say that people probably in the world today are on average about 1,400% better off than they were in 1908. Because I, I, I would not expect the UN to go, oh, but things are happening much more rapidly now. Productivity is, uh, is increasing much more rapidly. So if it's 1,400% from 1908 to 2008, then it'll be, and I really, I don't know, 14,000, 140,000 times as great by the time we get to uh, 2108. And I think you're, you're suggesting that they, uh, that they may have missed the exponential trend and that it might be so much better even than what they're projecting. That... <laughs> that's, exactly, that, that's exactly my expectation. I, I, I think that, um, that we'll be 1,400% better off uh, a lot sooner than, than, uh, the, than the year 2108. Uh, and, and I think that that's that one, of, one of the problems with um, this, this – I'm going to call it a kind of institutional way of thinking about the future, which it's hard for institutions to use any other way of thinking about the future. But, but this, this approach to the future that you'll see – I'm sorry, I missed it. By definition, it's, it would be hard for them to yeah, – I mean, that's, that's how they're going to look at it. Um, but but, but – um, they are bound, I think, um, in any government, um, any uh, any bureaucratic or educational or uh, just just about any institution is bound to look at the past and try to draw kind of a linear projection into the future, primarily because that's the way we've always looked into the future from the past, and the. Um, the exponential curve we've been on uh, has been slow enough that that these linear projections have been ballpark to uh, to, to the actual exponential projections up to now, but that's not going to be the case any longer. I think very soon um, linear projections become so far off base that they're that they're virtually worthless, and and I think that's one of the reasons why, um, if not for if not for the reasons that he says. Um, that's one of the reasons why I think a critique like like Lomborg's is, is probably very helpful because I think the future is is certain to be one thing and that is extremely different from what we think it's going to be. So, <laughs> you know, right. any any projection you make as to as to what it's going to be like doesn't take into account all the unexpected things that will happen between now and then, and there are potentially more of those uh, than than there would have been in the previous century. And they probably have a lot more impact than they did. And let me, let me give you just one example, and I think this, this kind of makes the case really nicely. Lomborg talks about um, what do you want to do? Do you want to put money into uh, – Michael was talking earlier about renewable energy technology. And Lomborg takes the number, the amount of money that Germany is spending on solar panels. And he says, well, they're spending all this money – but if they would wait a couple of years, maybe, or 10 years, he's not sure. Uh, but at some point, 
uh, solar panels are going to work a lot better than they currently do. And if you hold off and spend the money then, you're going to get a much bigger bang for your buck, and you're going to get a much better return on your investment for uh, investing in solar panels. And, of course, we've been talking about Ray Kurzweil's projection for some time that, when is it, by about the year 2020? He talks about this thing called the solar singularity. Is that am that's I, am right. I getting his time frame? Yeah, that's about or right. And memories on it's the solar singularity uh, is that point in time in which uh, buying uh, electricity off the grid is more expensive than uh, having a solar panel on your roof. In other words, um, the, the price per watt is is low enough on uh, with solar that it just doesn't make any sense to continue to get your electricity off the grid. And it's been pointed out that there are some places uh, where that's already true. Um, Hawaii, for example, uh, they get most of their power from diesel generators, and um, that's so it makes electricity more expensive in Hawaii. And uh, so uh, more people have uh, ad adapted solar because they can actually get it cheaper uh, through that means. So, uh, and and uh, as as solar gets better and better, and more efficient, that uh, that will be true. The the fact that uh, that that solar is cheaper than the grid uh, in more and more places, and so. Um, and I think we now, now I see Michael's Michael's response uh, here is uh, Lomborg's wait until it's even better is a classic circular and ultimately self-defeating argument. I think that's true if it's lather, rinse, repeat, right? If if you say no matter how solar how good solar gets, we're always going to say well yeah, but if you just hold off, you know, ten years from now it's going to be. I mean that's true. You're, you're, you're well, right. I, you know, I, I, it's sort of the uh, you know I'm going to um, I'm going to wait until PCs can't get it, until computers can't get any better before I buy my first one. No. <laughs> Uh, at some point, it became, and you know, there was a time in the 70s, I suppose, when you would, you might say, yeah, computers are getting cheaper and cheaper all the time uh, to get a better and better machine. I'm going to wait until they can actually do something, uh, and then I'm going to buy my first one uh, before, I, you know, because I, I can see that they're getting better all the time. And uh, but you know, at some point, it became worthwhile to buy a computer, and it's not 2008. Uh, that point would have been probably what, Phil, about. 81, 82, 1981, 82. Right. Yeah. Uh, that it, it, that computers could actually do something worthwhile uh, enough to uh, that somebody other than a hobbyist would buy one. And so, um, exactly. I, I guess solar will be that way too. At some point, we're all gonna we're all gonna we're gonna, all gonna purchase them, even though we know that you know six months down the road they'll be even better. Right. And, and just clarify, Michael, uh, Lomborg is not saying. Uh, not everyone should wait, just us. He's actually saying Germany should wait, okay, just, just to be specific as to who he was talking about in the, uh, in, in the article. And I think it's not even a matter of saying don't do it. it he's, it's really a question of scale and uh, how you phase up to it. And um, I thought it was pretty interesting that, uh, Stephen, when you and I were talking the other night, uh, one of the topics we had for the program this evening is a major breakthrough in solar. So uh, catch us up on that. Yeah, um, an anti-reflective coating uh, that is being developed now. Um, that basically, right now, solar panels uh, they reflect they reflect some of the light that hits them. Uh, you know, it, it has like a glassy surface to these things to protect the uh, components inside the solar panel, and that uh, and it reflects uh, about thirty percent of the light that hits the solar panel. It reflects away. Uh, so it's only picking up about 67.4% is what the article says of the sunlight that's shown on it. Well, this uh, this anti-reflective coating, it's a, it's a nanomaterial that they put on it, um, it cuts down that reflection to where now the and now it has the opportunity to, to absorb 96.21%. So basically all of the light that hits the panel. And it, and, it, and it handles another problem, too, um, the problem of, uh, of angle. Um, it doesn't matter, really, what angle the sun is, is uh, shining from that when it hits the panel. Um, it, it, can, it, it, uh, it allows it absorption from greater angles than uh, what, was, uh, what was happening before. So, you, you know... You bring you bring in uh, that's just an, another example of uh, the of how of how to improve these solar panels. You, you do that, and then you continue to cut down on the amount of silicon that goes into them, 
and come up with other methods to, to do that. And you know, and and you're, you're uh, so you're improving these solar panels in in uh, <laughs> probably a dozen different ways all at once. And so you can see how this is going to make it better and better. Um, absolutely. Uh, the, when when you see that kind of uh, performance um, coming from uh, you know solar, I mean that's the, the the goal we're looking for is when you can get close to 100 uh, percent energy absorption. Uh, I, I just I have to step in, Michael. I could not disagree with you more on Bjorn Lomborg, um, and I think that uh, he his views are outside of the standard, but uh, the need to de destabilize the climate change and commerce discussion, I, I think, is, uh, is, is certainly not what's going on there. Um, and I would, uh, I would just, I would strongly disagree with that. Um, certainly, they use him and everyone else, uh, WG, to answer your question, uh, everyone who writes for that, uh, for that paper, they, they definitely use them to sell, to sell newspapers. But I think, I, I think the uh, arguments about that I'm seeing in the chat room about DVD players versus uh, versus solar panels um, is that the market actually worked with DVD players. People really did buy DVD players, and there are some people who still are on VHS and haven't bought one yet because they're waiting for the best ultimate DVD player. It, 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 you see the market functioning as it should there, and the the real question is how does the market and government best work together with something like uh, solar technology? Uh, and, and I think that um, I, I think that that is not uh, as clear cut an answer as um, as we would like for it to be, because I think that if if you have a strong uh, ideological bias one way or the other, if you have a strong anti-government ideological pro-market pro-free market ideological bias, you're going to say, well, um, we, we think that, uh, you know, we think the government should stay out and the technology will develop on its own and people will adopt it when it's ready. If you, if you, you take Michael's position, then you're going to say, uh, no, uh, that's crazy. People are going to engage in this, in this circular pattern and we're never going to make, uh, we'll never get to where the, the technology is actually, uh, is actually ready to go. But, but I think that, um, the, the, the idea that it that it won't be different, um, or that it that it won't develop without a huge government push is wrong too. I think there's a I think there's a stasis point. I think there is a point of inflection, whereby um, a certain amount of private investment, a certain amount of government interest, and and will get something going. Uh, and there's a certain point where a full-blown government push to make something happen. Uh, is also the right approach. So I don't pretend to have any. I don't pretend to have any answers. Um, uh, what I what I do think is that the uh, the left versus right uh, political argument only clouds the issue. I don't think it uh, it helps us see things any better. I agree. I agree. Um, there there are some functions for which uh, you know the profit motive doesn't get it done, and it, it might be things that really really need to be done. And uh, but but there's it's it's hard for the private sector to address it because there's not a not a clear path to make a profit, and so you know at, at points like that, then uh, we as a society uh, we step in with government solutions. So that's just the way it works. That's uh, and so yeah, it's not a left or right thing. It's just sort of a I don't know. You have to decide whether it's a right or wrong thing. I guess is the best way to go with it. Absolutely. Well, I think that uh, that gets us that gets us close to our time. That that is ultimately the uh, that is ultimately the issue. I mean, if you if you uh, if you spin it around one way or the other, you think, well, how do we get the most good uh, for the money? And uh, it can be, you know, a, a person can say the answer is strictly through free markets, or they can say it's strictly through uh, government intervention. I have a feeling that the uh, the, the ultimate answer that gets us there is going to be a, a, a messy combo of the two that uh, that ideologues are not going to be entirely happy with on either side of the spectrum. But we're close to our time here, so I'm going to shift gears quickly and say, what's our music for this evening? Well, uh, the band Black Lab uh, returns. Uh, we, we've had them before with a song called Sunset, but tonight it's uh, their song Remember. Remember. All right. Well, we will... 
remember to tune in to Fast Forward Radio twice next week. We'll have the times up on uh, the Speculist, but we're going to be on covering the Convergence 08 conference. We'll be on Saturday as well as Sunday. We'll be on at a special time Saturday. I believe it'll be uh, – well, well, we'll post the times. I don't want to say the wrong times. And we'll be on quite a bit earlier Sunday than we normally are. So I'm looking forward to talking with you all from Convergence 08. All right. Looking forward to that. All right. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks, Michael. Thanks to everybody in the chat room. We appreciate you hanging in with us, and we appreciate you being part of Fast Forward Radio. We will be with you again next week on the next Fast Forward Radio. Until then, good night. 